Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Hey, so we're going to jump into our scripture this morning and uh, buckle in. It's verses 1 through 20 in Ruth chapter 2. So if you want to follow along, you can go there. But in verse 1, it says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young woman working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, he asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sieves without stopping her and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. 
May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this room, and I thank you for these people, and um, I thank you that you have um, shown us that you're in the business of showing up here, and so I just pray that you would wake us up to your activity here in this room. I pray that um, through a story from so many years ago that you would allow that you would allow us to see um, that you have always been working for us. Uh, I thank you that um, just as you wrote the story of Naomi and Ruth and Bo as you have been writing our stories as well. And so I just pray over the next few weeks uh, and today that you would um, I don't know, that you would make us aware of that and that, um, that we would feel your spirit's, uh, I don't know, invitation to uh, participate in the story that you're writing with eyes wide open and acting on purpose. So we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I'm excited to jump back into the story of Ruth today. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit has something good for us once again. If you missed, if we missed you last week, um, we are for the season of Lent, which will take us through Easter. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ruth, looking at the stories of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Uh, what I said last week is that uh, we'll follow it chapter by chapter in the month of March. So last week we did chapter one, chapter two this week, next week three. Last week, four. Big spoilers. Um, but uh, what my hope is is that you would follow along and read with us. But also, will you at some point in the season of Lent, will you take, um, it'll take, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Will you read the whole story of Ruth in one sitting? I think it is meant to be read as one whole story. You know, we added chapters and verses and things like that. It's absolutely meant to be read in one whole story. Um, and so I would love for you guys to read it how it was meant to be read at some point in time. So, um, so yeah, so we're spending the season here in Springbrook in the Book of Ruth. Uh, incredible story, incredible people. Um, but we are looking at it through a really specific lens. Uh, we're not just reading Ruth, we're reading Ruth and then looking at it through the lens of loving kindness. Uh, loving kindness, it comes from a really hard word to translate, uh, a Hebrew word, hesed. Um, and while that word hesed only shows up three times in the Book of Ruth, uh, it is the word that best describes the entire book. We quoted the rabbis last week who say, um, Ruth is kind of a, a really um, unique book in the Old Testament because it exists just to show us loving kindness. Um, and so we started to define the word said last week uh, by calling it mercy and love and kindness, all of which are covered um, by like an immovable loyalty. Um, and that is a start on what said is. But I told you last week that we will really spend four weeks not just looking at Ruth, but trying to define uh, this word. It is a really, really, really uh, hard to define word. Um, so we'll just keep peeling back layers and definitions um, because hesed is not just uh, a loyal love or a loyal mercy or a loyal kindness. It's also an active one. Uh, hesed is something that you do more than it is something that you think or something that you feel. Um, essentially, it is a loyal, loving kindness in action. 
loyal, loving kindness on purpose. Um, it, I, I, I think that uh, maybe that's one of the things that makes this word so uh, hard to define is because it's, it's not just something that you can say, it's something that you see uh, when you notice it. It's something that you experience. Hesed is so tied to action that it almost exists beyond words. Um, and so in order for this word, said, in order for it to take place, it needs two parties. Um, it needs someone in need, uh, maybe desperate need. And it needs someone with the power or the resources to make a difference in that need. That's why it requires action. You need someone in need and someone who uh, can meet the need. Um, as a theologian I read this week uh, said, in, the nut- in a nutshell, said is the gospel lived out. A need and meeting the need. And so as we look at this week, uh, as we look at that active part of Hesed love, um, we're going to look at it through the eyes of Naomi. We're really going to focus just on her uh, this week. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit just to catch you up if we, if we missed you last week. But um, we met Naomi last week in Ruth chapter 1. And, um, and I think we can be honest, if you've read Ruth chapter 1, it's not a great look for her. It is not a good chapter uh, for Naomi. Often uh, when Bible teachers talk about Naomi, They talk about a bitter old woman who is always grumbling and complaining. That's really kind of her characterization uh, in the Bible. But I really think that's a small way of seeing her. Uh, I read an entire essay this week where a theologian compared uh, Naomi to Job. And what the theologian said is, is if we want to see Naomi, we have to look past the grumbling and complaining because uh, the better way to see her is how we see Job in the Bible, the man who suffered in the Bible. Uh, The best way to see her is as a female Job, someone acquainted with sorrow. And so if we want to get to know her, uh, we have to... um, because I think she has a lot to offer us this morning. If we want to do that, then we have to enter into her world. And to enter into her world means to enter into her suffering. Uh, the scriptures, the book of Ruth, takes Naomi's struggles very seriously. And I think that we're meant to do uh, the exact same thing. So Naomi's story in Ruth 1, it begins uh, in a famine, a humanitarian, a humanitarian crisis in her homeland. That is how her story begins. Uh, the uh, there's, uh, I think for a lot of us, food insecurity is something that's really hard uh, for us to relate to or to imagine. It's things we've seen pictures of, but not many of us in our actual lives have uh, lived this out, ha- have actually experienced this kind of desperation. Um, but things are bad enough for Naomi and for her husband, Elimelech, that they uh, flee their hometown of Bethlehem and they head to a place called Moab. Um, And because of of food insecurity, Naomi not just uh, flees her homeland, but she becomes an immigrant to a foreign land. Again, this is kind of a difficult thing for most of us in this room uh, to understand, but I think we do have an imagination um, for a refugee. Uh, But this isn't, uh, Moab and Bethlehem aren't really friends. There's political tension um, between, a long history of political tension tension between the two um, for uh, years and years and years and years. Years. Uh, so Naomi um, has not just left her land and gone to a place that is um, unknown to her. Um, we also have to, I, to think that she has left her family and she has left her friends and her customs and the comfort of knowing, knowing how things go and the comfort of being 
known. Um, as I tried to enter into this story this week, I just kept, you probably can too, thinking of you, the faces of Ukrainians on trains uh, to, be, uh, to, to leave the Ukraine, right? Um, I think the number I saw last night as I was looking at it was that there are now over 2 million Ukrainian refugees, so like, and a million something of them have gone to Poland, and so I just am picturing these uh, Ukrainian people on trains headed to Poland, and their face, this is where Naomi is, she didn't leave for war, she left for famine, um, but she has gone to be a refugee in a town that's not her own, Um, that's where we find her, not fleeing because of war, but because of famine, and then when she gets there, her husband dies which is like a fact that could take your breath away all on its own. I read someone this week who said, uh, widow is not a word that comes with permission. It just hits you, and it hits her. But not only is Naomi a widow, she's a widow in a foreign land, which is another level. Uh, She and her two sons, they um, find a way post the death of her husband to live in this place to continue their lives. And her two sons, who are essentially like uh, two life insurance policies for Naomi, um, who is doubly blessed, not just one son, but two, they each find and marry Moabite women. Uh, And then 10 years later, both of her sons and their wives are childless. So Ruth, she has, or Naomi, she has famine, and she has immigration, and she has death, and now she has infertility. Years and years of infertility uh, for both families. If uh, you do the math uh, and you count cycles, which some of you know all too well, um, we're talking about over 200 devastating disappointments for Naomi's sons and daughters-in-law, as well as for herself. Infertility, it's like this relentless hurt and hoping. For some of you, this feels really near and really tender. And then, after all of that, after 10 years, her sons die, both of them. Both of them. Again, breathtaking, all in its own. But for Naomi, when her sons die, so does her future. Uh, I read this week, when her sons were buried, she essentially was buried too. Naomi's story is one of trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. In fact, she is so marked uh, by her grief and by her trauma that when she uh, comes back to her town, when she goes back to Bethlehem at the end of Ruth chapter one, her ancestors barely even recognize her. They say, is this Naomi? Uh, It's been 10 years or so since she left. That may feel like a long time, but but as a a grown adult, a 10 year age gap is not that big of a change. You know, maybe your hair falls out a little and you put on a little weight, but it's like you you can usually, you know, tell a difference in someone as a grown adult. Um, uh, but, but when she comes back, her trauma and her sadness have changed her physical appearance. Uh, and when they call her Naomi, she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or winsome. Uh, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for God has made my life bitter. She says, when I went away from this town, I was full, which is interesting because of famine. When I went away from this town, I was full, but I've come back empty. I don't think she's talking about her belly. I think she's talking about her soul. Her soul has come back empty. Uh, Naomi, she grew up an Israelite in the tribe of Judah, the cornerstone uh, of her life, her culture, her entire belief system. Uh, It was all built on the hesed of Yahweh, God's loving kindness for his people. 
uh, her people, she has heard since she was born, her people uh, have been seen by God and chosen by God and set apart by God, provided for by God. He rained down manna from heaven and he parted the sea so that they could escape oppression. Uh, Her life would have been full of the stories of God's love for his people and his rescue of his people. Again, the foundation of her nation's faith is in the hope of Yahweh. Exodus 34, 6. Uh, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. The word there is hesed, filled with hesed. And I think it's worth uh, knowing this and noting this to know what Naomi was taught and what she believed uh, because um, the faith, to know about the faith that that she was raised on because when we pick up in Ruth chapter two, Naomi has reached a deep level of doubt and disillusionment with the God of her ancestors. Uh, It reminds me, has anyone read the book Night by Elie Wiesel? Yeah, okay, if you haven't. It's, it's a must read. Um, it, it's so good. But uh, Elie Wiesel was a, a Romanian Holocaust survivor, and he was a devout Jew, and he goes uh, into a concentration camp um, uh, devout in his faith, and he comes out of a concentration camp saying, not that God wasn't real, just that he had no faith or no hope that he was kind. No faith and no hope that he was good. And I think this is where we find Naomi. Uh, Carolyn Curtis James, who wrote the book, uh, The Gospel of Ruth, which honestly today is just a book report of. Um, <laughs> it's phenomenal. If you're looking for another resource in Ruth or, uh, for this series, The Gospel of Ruth is incredible. Um, she says it like this. She says, instead of sensing the warmth of God's care, the shelter of his wing, or the steadfastness of his hesed, Naomi was exposed to the elements. Here, in the wake of one tragedy after another, the thought of God's said appeared confusing and more of a contradiction than a comfort to the weather-beaten Naomi. Uh, Naomi was raised to believe that her most true place was under the cover of the Hesed of God, thriving and flourishing under the loving kindness of God. But I love how Carolyn James puts it. She says she has been exposed to the elements. Some of you are like, yes, me too. Uh, She is not just, um, her experience of Yahweh becomes um, more confusing than clear, more of a contradiction than a comfort. She's not just grieving the loss of her husbands and her sons and what could have been. We also see her questioning and grieving what she thinks uh, is the loss of the cover of God, the loss of the loving kindness of God, the loss of the hesed and the favor of God. And as we said uh, last week, uh, God's has said it is the nucleus of the book of Ruth. It's the focal point. Uh, from very early in the story, we're asked to ask the question alongside Naomi, has the loving kindness for Na- has God's loving kindness for Naomi run out? Is it out? Because through trauma, she uh, has become a woman of great need. And in chapter two, we find a woman who feels uh, as though she has faced the God who could meet her needs, but instead of feeling full, she feels empty, looked over, passed over. And I wonder if you can relate. If you've had times in your life when the loving kindness of God feels more confusing than it feels clear, more a contradiction than a comfort. I have. (laughs) Maybe you have too. So what is God up to? Because this can't be the whole story, right? If Hesed is what the whole book is about, what is God up to? Has Naomi been forgotten and overlooked as she thinks she may have been? Uh, The thing about Hesed is that it's not just a one-time action, 
but it is a constantly acting love, a constantly acting kindness, a never giving up on kind of thing. And it's here, I think, in the emptiness and the forgotten and uh, the overlooked that seems to define Naomi that we find that the father is always up to something. And we see that in the story of Naomi, what has been um, honestly really hard for me to see at times in my own life, uh, that for Naomi's God, hardship is not hopelessness. And I've struggled with that a lot because to me, hardship feels a lot like hopelessness. Hardship, while it is incredibly hard, it also is a fertile ground for loving kindness to break through. We see this in chapter 2. We see the Hesed of God. Um, and it's interesting. We don't see it in some like wild and spectacular way. What we see instead is, is uh, we learn about the heart and the Hesed of God for Naomi through the actions of his people, her people who uh, show that God is always acting on her behalf by a few simple acts of hesed in them. Uh, essentially, God steers Naomi's soul back toward restoration through his people doing what he asked them to do. It's as simple as that. In our text today, Ruth, she's chosen to stay with Naomi, and they are led uh, by the gracious hand of God back to Bethlehem, where, where Ruth uh, takes the care of these two women into her own hands. And she decides uh, to go to a field and to pick up whatever grain she can so that they don't uh, go hungry. And according to verse 3 of chapter 2, uh, our scripture says that she happens upon the field of Boaz. Um, that, that phrase, happens upon, uh, our English phrase for that would be like, as luck would have it. And I think that the writer means for us to notice uh, that what we call luck is actually more like provision. The provision of God, the care of God, the loving kindness of God for Ruth and Naomi that she ends up in this field. And Ruth shows up in the field of Boaz, who is a man of principle, and he's a man of ethic. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about him a lot more next week. Um, and as she shows up, uh, Boaz is blessing his workers. And then they bless him back, which is like a whole other sermon that I don't have time to do today, but I just think it's fascinating. They bless him back. And then um, within God's provision, Ruth works really hard. Uh, this is just a side note. I think sometimes we forget that the kingdom of God makes a lot of room for working. It really does. There isn't room in the kingdom of God to strive for his favor, but there is room in the kingdom of God uh, to work hard on his mission. And that's what Ruth does. She works hard in the fields and her working hard catches Boaz's eye. And when he asks about her, uh, who she is, the foreman, um, when he talks about her, he speaks of her work ethic. He says she worked really hard. She barely took a break all day. And Ruth's hard work leads to favor in the eyes of the field owner, Boaz. And he offers her his protection and he offers her uh, his favor. Uh, quick uh, lesson on harvesting wheat in the BC years. I'm an expert. Um, actually, our, our kids learned this last week. If you have kids that are in the elementary school class, ask them about uh, when they learned how to glean last week. It's kind of cool. Um, but uh, here's how it worked. The hired men would go out first, uh, and they would cut the grain, and then they would lay it in bunches on the ground. And then behind the hired men would be the hired women uh, who would gather up the bunches and bind the bunches into bundles in order to um, send them to the threshing room floor, which that's when uh, the, the wheat gets separated and the kernels and husks are separated and all of that. Um, and then after all of that takes place, after the wheat has been transferred out of the field to the threshing floor, that's when the gleaners were allowed to come in. Um, after all of the work was done, the gleaners could come in and, and could gather the wheat behind everybody else. But Boaz offers Ruth an exception. 
And I think this is worth noting. Uh, Not only does he say, I can protect you if you stay in my fields, he also offers to let her walk behind the first teams of harvesters, which means she gets the first chance at the best grain. And then he does something even crazier, and he tells the men to leave uh, stuff behind for her on purpose. And then he offers her as much water as she wants. And then at the end of the day, he offers her warm food. He offers her favor and blessing and provision over and over again. And so by the time she gets home, Ruth returns to Naomi in the evening with a basket full of grain and warm bread to eat. Uh, Boaz uh, offers Ruth and in turn Naomi an invitation of protection and favor and blessing. And Naomi, when she gets there, Naomi calls it hesed. She says, may the Lord bless him for his kindness, his hesed to the living and to the dead. It's the second time we see the, bo- the word hesed used in the book of Ruth. And here's what Naomi is saying. She's saying, Boaz saw our need and had the power and the resources to meet us with mercy and act in our favor. And I think the second thing she's saying is, Boaz acts like Yahweh. Boaz's kindness points to a kindness beyond himself. That's why she uses this word, said Her blessing of Boaz, it points back to the Father. It intentionally points to the protection and the provision of God through the hands of a man. Uh, said it's not a romantic love. It is active mercy. A lot of times at this point in the story, uh, preachers start talking about romance. In fact, when I started researching for the book of Ruth, uh, the only sermon series I could find were like marriage series on the book of Ruth. And it's not that it's bad. It, it's, you can read it for romance, sure. It's just like, it's a way. I think it's honestly kind of a small way. I, I think it's kind of, I don't know, devastating or dangerous to only read the book of Ruth as romance because I don't think Boaz is responding to Ruth out of romance here. In fact, he tells us why he wants to give her favor and protection. He says, I saw what you did with Naomi. It's not Boaz saying, you're pretty, come gather my grain. That sounded like a pickup line. Y'all can try it. (laughs) Um, Can we edit that out of the podcast? Um, instead is not him hitting on her. Instead, Boaz tells Ruth, I, he was so moved by her loving kindness uh, toward Naomi that it moves him to do the same thing for her. This is not necessarily romantic love. It's agape love. It's hesed uh, leading to hesed. He sees it in her and it moves him to act in the same way. And through Boaz, God sees Naomi's need and he uh, acts on her behalf and he does it uh, with her how he often does it with us. I believe that there are big, explosive, faith-filled miracles, like miraculous supernatural moments in our life. Like we believe that around here. We practice it around here. We like actively ask for it around here. I think that is so, 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 so true. But we also believe that uh, there plenty of healing and plenty of hope comes to us little by little by little. Uh, uh, Paul in Romans calls it degree by degree. And so much of the time, uh, God uses people uh, for our healing and for our hope. Image bearers of the Father uh, to do his work through the voice and hands and resources and mercy of people. God's loving kindness acts on our behalf. For us, it can be small moments of protection and small moments of favor. I remember opening my front door during uh, one of the worst seasons of my life and seeing a bag of Trader Joe's from a friend that I didn't ask for. 
Uh, another day, uh, we opened our front door and two of our friends were like filled with Walmart bags of groceries coming in and like laying them on our counter. And it wasn't that we couldn't afford to buy groceries, it's that we were so heartbroken we couldn't think about it. And they just did. They thought about it for us. Do not minimize the Hesed work of food. I put that in all caps. Do not minimize the Hesed work of food. When you wonder if God is whispering for you to take someone a meal, he probably is. He just probably is. Uh, I read it like this this week. If someone hands you a pair of gloves when the sun is shining and it's warm, it doesn't mean that much. Because uh, for us, prosperity seems to dull our senses to the hesed of God in our lives. But uh, when it's as cold as it is today and someone offers you a pair of gloves, it feels like mercy. And hesed starts to take weight again because you need it. You need to see it. You need uh, to experience it. Warm bread is a very small thing most of the time. Uh, Naomi had probably eaten it a countless number of times in her life. But this warm bread was a small thing that became a big thing for her because for Naomi, it wasn't just bread to fill her belly. It started to renew and to refill her soul. This bread for her was a reminder that God has seen her and that he will work on her behalf. Uh, Lamentations 3, uh, 21 through 23. I joke about this a lot of times. I have no idea what a life verse is. People talk about life verses. But if I were going to pick one today, it would be this one, if you're looking for one, if you know what it is. Um, Lamentations 3, it says this, Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each new morning. Naomi's pain is thick It's not that uh, it goes away because Ruth brings her a basket of grain and some warm bread. Uh, It it, it isn't that it goes away because Ruth gets to glean in Boaz's field. The pain for Naomi, I don't think, magically goes away. Uh, I read someone this week who said her pillow, or the pillow next to her is still empty. No matter what happens in this, it isn't that the pain goes away. I think what starts to happen is that her view of it starts to shift. And her view of it starts to change. Uh, What changes for Naomi is not uh, God's cover of loving kindness over her life. What changes is her perspective of God's loving kindness over her life. Um, It makes me think of the Empire State Building. Has anyone seen the Empire State Building before? Okay, um, it's magnificent. <laughs> it's a great building. Um, but my, my favorite view of the Empire State Building ever is there's, there's a bar at the top of Rockefeller Center that's on the 65th floor of Rockefeller Center. And from uh, that porch, you can see the Empire State Building like in all of its glory. It's so beautiful. And then uh, when night comes, they light it up and it's like, it's just so clear. Like, oh, the Empire State Building. Like it's so, 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 so good. But I've also been in New York and past the Empire State Building at a street level and passed it literally. Like, I didn't know what it was. At street level, it just looks like anything else. It, it, isn't, as, it isn't as noticeable. It, it, it isn't as glorious. There's the Empire State Building clear as day um, from high up, but harder to see on a, on a street level. It isn't that the Empire State Building moved away or went away. It's just easier to see from the clouds, and it's easier to see in the dark. God has said has not moved or gone away from Naomi. He has at every moment of her life seen her and acted on her behalf. Uh, It's just harder to see from certain places and it's harder to see from certain positions. And so God uses Ruth and Boaz to give Naomi eyes to see. 
He uses Ruth's words from chapter one that are so beautiful to say to Naomi what's true, that he will go where she goes, that he will stay where she stays, that he will follow her and care for her all of the days of his life and that his, or of her life and that his loving kindness will forever extend to her alive and forever extend to her dead. As Naomi's story unfolds, uh, we see her start to reach out and to hold on to the hesed of God. Grief and loss and pain, they are constants in her life. But these things, they're not thrown out by the goodness of God. They just learn how to exist with them. Uh, we learn that under the cover of Hesed, there is room uh, for the hurt and the pain and the suffering right next to the loving uh, kindness of God. It is not either or, it is both and. If you have ever started to breathe again after a trauma, then you know this to be true. It is both and. It is both and. The weight of suffering and the goodness of God, they sit right dang next to each other. That's how they sit. I want to end with a quote from Eugene Peterson. I think I have a slide for this, Taylor, um, about this idea. This is what he says. He says, we live in a time when everyone's goal is to be perpetually healthy and constantly happy. If any one of us fails to live up to the standards that are advertised as normative, we are labeled as problems to be solved. And a host of well-intentioned people rush to try out various cures on us. This devalues the experience of suffering. The gospel offers a different view of suffering. In suffering, we enter the depths. We are at the heart of things. We are near to where Christ was on the cross. Uh, I want to take a minute here. Uh, we do this every week. We call it Selah here at the Vineyard. It's just a quiet pause. We stole the word from the Psalms. It just means a breath, a pause. So I just want to do that uh, in this moment. And I have two questions for you to maybe consider. We'll have some verses on the, on the screen. Um, but two questions. The first question is this. Uh, where has God used simple acts of loving kindness uh, through people to draw you back to his loving kindness? Where in your life? Maybe recently, maybe you can think back. But where, um, where has God used simple acts of loving kindness um, to point to his loving kindness? And then my second question is, where does the Holy Spirit want to shift your position? Where are you like maybe sitting with everything right up here in your face and the Holy Spirit maybe just like wants to take you a few steps back to see a wider uh, view of things uh, so that you can know that you have not been forgotten by God and that he has been and he is working on your behalf. Uh, Psalm 3 calls God the lifter of our heads. And I really, truly, as I was praying for today, feel like the Holy Spirit wants to do that for some of us today. I think he like literally wants to lift our heads. Places where we've been looking down and wondering if we've been left alone. And God wants to lift our heads and show us he has not let us go. Some of you in this place in the last few months have experienced that in like radical ways. Like I wish I could tell everyone's stories, but they're theirs to tell. Radical ways. And I think the Holy Spirit is still doing that. So where does God want to lift your head and give you a different view, um, a different position to see what he's up to?